Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Hello again and welcome to the latest installment of the Legal Faceoff podcast here on WGN Radio. I'm Joe Brand. As always, we're joined by Tina Martini of McDermott, Will and Emery and Rich Lankov of Downey and Lankov. Let's get right to it. And we welcome in Bill Nesson, attorney at law, who's currently calling out Illinois prisons for abuse on the elderly. Bill, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me, Joe. So, Bill, more than three years ago, the U.S. District Court in Chicago issued a consent decree requiring the Illinois Department of Corrections to provide adequate medical care to prisoners with serious medical needs. What initially led to the issuance of this decree? Well, the the case was filed actually in 2010. And uh, so it was nine years old by the time the consent decree was entered. And, And in the meantime, there was some work done by experts that found that the um, medical care provided to people in Illinois prisons was inadequate. There were there were two expert reports that led up to this. And then the parties in 2019 agreed uh, that um, the uh, state officials who were sued in their official capacities would cause the uh, Department of Corrections to provide adequate medical care to people with serious medical needs in the prisons. Bill, one of the reports was authored by Dr. John Rabba. Uh, who is that and what were the findings contained in his report? Sure. He's, he's actually authored five reports. Um, okay. The most, most recent one was in August of this year was, was made public. He is a, um, a long time, a doctor who's long time worked with people in prison and, and particularly in the Cook County jail. And he was uh, appointed as independent monitor uh, for the consent decree. So it's his job reporting to the court to, uh, to take a look at what's going on in the prison system in terms of the medical care and report back what needs to be done to comply with the consent decree. And so he's, he's issued five reports so far, all of which have found it deficient and all of which uh, have been asking for, um, you know, improvement and, and a plan to implement the consent decree. So let's take a little bit of a closer look at his latest report where he had specific findings regarding some um, abuse with respect to, um, you know, elder care. Can you get a little bit more granular on what those most recent findings were? Sure. Yeah, no, he he's actually used the word uh, abuse. He, he gets it from the medical literature. The AMA has a definition of, of elder abuse of, of withholding the care that's necessary for someone uh, on a medical standpoint. And so Dr. Reba went through many of the... Um, uh, files of people who um, were being taken care of and found uh, quite a few of them that were not properly being taken care of. And uh, 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 there's a, cu- a couple of them in particular uh, where people people had dementia and they really weren't capable of making good medical decisions for themselves, yet that the prison system uh, pretty much forced those decisions on people who uh, were not capable. And and both of those people um, lost a lot of weight, was very visible, and eventually died while in prison um, without, at least in Dr. Reba's view, uh, 
getting the proper medical care that, that they were entitled to. So Dr. Reba um, suggests that elderly inmates with certain mental and physical conditions uh, should have a pathway to uh, discharge when they are no longer a danger to the community. There's also a bill, uh, HB 3613 pending, that would provide a similar pathway for uh, people who are 55 years old and who have served at least 25 years. Um, why is that important and what, um, you know, what would serve the community by allowing these people to move on from the prison system at that point? Sure. I think I think it is important because it it would be a start and it would involve those who are most uh, most needy of medical care, people who are elderly, uh, because it, without that, they would end up uh, uh, effectively dying in prison. Uh, many of them there. Um, and, and it's a problem that's getting worse. Just if you go back uh, to 2010. When, when the lawsuit was filed, 55 and older people in prison were 5.6% of the population. Now they're 14%. So the prison population is getting older. And the, uh, the, the average age at that time was 35.9 years. Back in 1978, it was only 26 years. It's 40 years now is the average, uh, average age. And people uh, are, are known to, uh, in, in, uh, uh, as they age, they age out of crime. And so you've got the people that need the most medical care are least likely to commit crimes that this bill would give them a pathway to release by, by going to a parole board and proving to the parole board uh, that they can uh, satisfactorily uh, meet the demands of being outside and, and be out of prison. So it, it would be very important, I think, to provide this pathway to keep people from uh, getting older and older in prison, more and more medical care when they are the least needy to be locked up. Well, just one follow up on that, because I think it's a very important point and it underlines, you know, everything you're doing. Um, you know, part of the goal of a penal system is to avoid uh, people from who people who have done wrong from doing wrong again. Right. I right. assume you've got data and lots of evidence that shows, as you mentioned, that as people not just get older, as they get, you know, uh, sicker and and in weaker health, those people are less far less likely to uh, commit a crime again than people who are younger and healthier. Correct. Well, they yes, uh, definitely on the age and on on and I think the the um, infirmity only only adds to uh, the fact that people. Uh, as they age and, and become frail and infirm, really aren't in a position to do harm on the outside. And there was actually a, um, 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 a, a case in Maryland where about 200 people were released uh, because of a legal issue. They had had a bad jury instruction and they were all, uh, they had all committed violent crimes. They were, uh, they were, they were people that were all uh, elderly and they had a recidivism rate of about 3% compared to 40%, which was a normal recidivism rate. So right there, uh, you have uh, good evidence um, that you can let a lot of these people out. And again, the, the, the bill 3613 would not guarantee anybody the right to get out, but it would give them an opportunity to show that they're ready to get out. So one last question here on Legal Faceoff. You were in private practice for 43 years. You were also right. an officer in the Navy for four years before that. Presumably in private practice at a big law firm, um, 
you were doing quite well and you were handling, uh, I think, uh, securities or futures regulation. Uh, you are now doing this work pro bono. Um, why is this important to you and why should it be important to society to uh, worry about people who, frankly, have committed you know, uh, crimes and who are now uh, in prison? Why should we worry about these people as a, as a society? Well, I think we should worry about it because they don't have very many champions as as they are, and they need people to worry about them. But but the the point is that we're, we have them in custody. We, as citizens of the state of Illinois, have placed them in custody, and it's our responsibility to make sure that we, we're doing the right thing. And and we're wasting we're wasting corrections dollars on people that don't need to be locked up that could be used for public safety and many other reasons. So. Uh, just from people's self-interest, laying laying aside uh, caring for these people, which is important too, it's it's very important just for public safety reasons to spend our dollars where they're most effective and not on locking up people who uh, are no longer capable of doing harm to others. Again, that's Bill Nissen, attorney at law. Bill, thank you so much for the time and the insight today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will, and Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Moving along in the Legal Faceoff podcast here on WGN Radio. This year's number of law students has reportedly reached a new low in least years. We bring in law professor Brian Leiter at the University of Chicago. Professor, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. So, uh, Professor, as Joe mentioned, uh, there's data gathered by Northwestern University, Pritzker School of Law, Vice Dean Sarah Lasky, who reports that only 272 new law professors have submitted applications to the Association of American Law Schools Faculty Appointments Register, the FAR, which is, as she noted, its lowest point in more than a decade. For some context, there were 662 applicants in 2010. I know your own personal data shows that this problem goes way farther back than that. Uh, tell us a little bit more about what your data shows and also to what do you attribute this phenomenon? So 25 years ago, there would be about a thousand applicants for law professor positions uh, in a typical year. Now, this is the late 90s, early days of the Internet, and a lot of those who applied weren't, didn't really have the right qualifications or preparation. These days, more people have information about what's required to get law teaching jobs. And that has something to do with the general downward trend, but it doesn't explain the really wild drop off in, in the last two years. 
I mean, 272 applicants and law schools are probably looking to hire 100 to 110 new professors. That's a very favorable ratio for the job seekers, but not so good for the law schools. Um, what do we attribute this to? I think there's different possibilities. One is, is that um, the requirements for getting an entry level teaching position in a law school have gone up very significantly. Um, these days, almost everyone either has, in addition to a law degree, a PhD in a cognate discipline that might be economics, history, philosophy. And if they don't have that, they have done what we call in law schools fellowships, where they have spent one or two years often teaching legal research and writing and developing their own legal scholarship in preparation for entering law teaching. And that's a lot. That's a lot by way of requirements for getting in. And it's especially a lot when the private legal sector market is extremely strong, where new uh, lawyers straight out of law school make $200,000, where uh, Supreme Court clerks, many of whom used to go into law teaching, many Supreme Court clerks now get offered $400,000 bonuses from leading law firms, but they have to commit to be there for at least two years. So uh, that probably are some of the major factors uh, at, at this stage. But I imagine some people somewhere in uh, law schools will begin studying this more systematically. Professor, you're at the University of Chicago uh, Law School, one of the best. Um, you probably can see firsthand the effect of this downward trend. How is this uh, playing out in the day-to-day -day work that you and your colleagues are doing uh, and, and are you personally seeing the effect of the, you know, failure to have more professors around? So, so far, it hasn't had any effect on us. Um, we um, we are very selective. Sometimes I think we're so selective, I don't know how anyone ever gets hired. Uh, but um, we have managed to make a steady number of appointments each year over the last couple of years. Uh, but we don't hire only entry-level professors. Often we hire faculty who have established a, a scholarly and teaching track record from other law schools. So we have, as it were, two markets that we're, we're looking at. Um, you know, we'll see whether we end up hiring any entry-level professors this year. It's a little too early um, in the sense that our appointments committee is still in the process of evaluating those 272 people who put their hat in, in the ring. Um, if you want to ask me in January, February, I should have a better idea whether this decline in the quantity is also going to have an effect on our ability to find suitable candidates. So, Professor, law school applications in 2022 were also down compared to 2021. Do you think that there's a correlation between these two phenomena? And if so what is that correlation? Um, so I don't think the the very recent sl relatively slight decline is a factor in what we're seeing now, um, partly given all the requirements for getting into law teaching that I was discussing earlier. Um, the more significant fact may be the big decline in the law student population from roughly 2010 to 2015 in the wake of the Great Recession. Um, there was a big fall off in applications. Maybe that is playing some role. The other possibility, of course, is the pandemic, right? The pandemic, you know, which has uh, placed enormous professional and personal burdens on so many people may have affected the ability of some candidates who might have wanted to get into law teaching to get ready um, to do so. 
Whether those hypotheses are correct, we'll have a better sense over the next two or three years. I'd be surprised if the downward trend continues, but if it does, then something very significant is is happening, and probably all law schools, including Chicago's, is going to um, start to feel a pinch of that. Professor, tell us if you can about your uh, top ninety-five law faculty ranking. What is that, and uh, how is that used in the in the industry? Okay, so I posted this on my blog called Brian Leiter's Law School Reports, which anyone can access, where I try to keep track of various things in legal education. Um, this was actually um, a rank. The data was compiled by other people on a website, the name of which I don't fully remember. They compiled it based on what they called the D index, which is a relative of something called the H index. Now, this is real scholarly minutia here. Um, the H index of a scholar um, is the number of times uh, their articles have been cited. Sorry, let me give a simple explanation. If you have an H index of five, it means you publish at least five articles that have been cited five times. If you have an H index of 100, it means you published 100 articles that have been cited at least 100 times, okay? So the higher the, the index, the better. Um, this was a variation on that, that in the sense that it was discipline specific. Um, that is, uh, it was reflecting, um, it was reflecting um, uh, only citations in law-related journals. Right? Um, and the number one law professor in the country, according to this, was our former colleague here at Chicago, Cass Sunstein, who is now serving in the Biden administration. My colleague, Eric Posner, was one of the number two professors. Uh, Eric Posner, as you may know, is the son of Richard Posner, the famous federal judge who was also a Chicago faculty member who, if he were still publishing and not uh, retired, he would probably be the number one <laughs> as as well. So that runs in the family there. Professor, last question before we let you go, you know, turning back to the question of, you know, uh, law school admissions declining slightly, law professorship applications decreasing. Um, you know, we're sort of in a different era than when a lot of us came up through law school, certainly me, me and Tina. Um, you know, we've got Kim Kardashian taking a baby bar and holding herself out to be a practicing lawyer. We have, you know, uh, at COVID, you know, during COVID, we saw law students uh, working from home, right, and learning from home. Maybe you could explain to our listeners, and particularly some of our younger listeners, why the rigor of a formal, old-school, Socratic method of law school education is still of value in practicing law, how that actually trains you to practice law. And, there, you know, there are no shortcuts for that. Yeah, well, that, of course, is a very uh, complicated question. Um, you know, what's you got two minutes. It is a very complex question, for sure. Uh, you know, the main thing we do in law school uh, is we train people, as they say, to think like a lawyer. But we also teach them substantive law in lots of different areas. You know, when I went when I was a commercial litigator in New York City many years ago, um, the two most important first year classes that I kept coming back to were contracts and civil procedure. It'll be different classes depending on what area you practice in. Um, schools have adjusted how they teach law school over the last 20 years from, you know, I graduated in 1987. Uh, from law school, things are different now. There's more clinical education. 
One thing that is true is that at least, you know, a lot of our graduates in Chicago are going to the big law firms in Chicago, New York, San Francisco. Um, and the fact is, those firms like to train their lawyers in lawyering a certain way. Um, and they'd actually be a little bit annoyed, I think, if we pretended that, as it were, we could take their place with respect to some of the nitty gritty aspects of strategy and, you know, case sensitive judgment and things like that. But we teach them the doctrine, we teach them the reasoning, we teach them argument, we teach them certain methodological tools. And I think generally we do that pretty well. So, so I'll vouch for legal education. <laughs> Again, that's law professor Brian Leiter at the University of Chicago. Professor, thanks so much for the time today. Thank you. Welcome back to the Legal Face-Off podcast. So what happens when protectors of the public like Batman and Superman enter the public domain? We bring in Larry Zerner of Zerner Law. He's been running the entertainment law firm for 22 years. He joins us on Legal Face-Off. Larry, thanks so much for joining us. Um, we're here to talk about the public domain and famous characters. There are a number of them over the next few years, such as Steamboat Willie, which is the first iteration of Mickey Mouse as well as a number of other DC characters like Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman that will all be entering the public domain since the original copyrights in these characters are going to be expiring. What does it mean for a copyright holder as well as for the public when a work enters the public domain? Oh, well, thanks for having me and thanks for asking. Um, so uh, when something is in the public domain, it means that there is no protection for it anymore. We, we we don't have any uh, problem conceptualizing the works of Shakespeare in the public domain and that anyone can use them or Charles Dickens. And that's essentially what will happen to Mickey Mouse and Superman and and Batman. They will be free for the taking. You can rebrand them, pre put them in any use you want, make your own movies, TV shows, comic books uh, of any kind uh, using those characters. Larry, so the current law is that copyright protection extends for 95 years from the date of first publication. Uh, this is the result of an extension a number of years ago known as the Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act. Right. Uh, with the issues we're talking about, including Steamboat Willie, which is obviously a very prominent uh, piece of intellectual property entering the public domain, do you think that there will be efforts to extend the term again? I don't. I, I mean, I just don't think there's any will to do that anymore. And I think that uh, they, they I, I mean, they may try, but I mean, if they're not, I mean, Mickey Mouse goes in the public domain in, uh, in a year, January 1st, 2024. So that if they haven't started yet, it ain't, it's not going to happen. Um, but uh, what I think is going to happen is, is that Disney is, and, and DC will claim trademark rights. And that's really where the fight's going to be over whether if you sell something a picture of steamboat willie that's in the public domain are you violating disney disney's trademark uh because people will think it's a disney product and that's the fight that has not been happened yet but is going is going to be is going to happen yeah so larry let's let's dig into that a little bit more i agree with you that it's probably pretty unlikely you've got a whole bunch of legislators who are not willing to even have this conversation about a further extension of the copyright term. 
Um, and assuming that these works do enter the public domain, there are other avenues. You mentioned trademarks. Would like to look at that a little bit more about what that looks like in terms of protecting these characters. And also, let's touch a little bit on, in terms of copyright protection, the extent to which derivative works may fit into this as well. Okay. <laughs> Why don't you tell us a little bit about like how like copyright could be used, even though these are entering the public domain, how copyright could be used trade, to afford certain protection, um, the, the derivative works aspect, and also trademarks, oh. which when you renew them can last forever. Yeah. Well, so one of the interesting cases was a case a few years ago involving the Sherlock Holmes books mm -hmm. and the author Conan Doyle estate had tried to claim that um, that those rights were still protected, even though most of the books of the Sherlock Holmes stories were in the public domain. There were still 10 that were not. And uh, they had the, the Conan Doyle estate tried to argue that uh, there was still protection. The court rejected that argument, but they said there's still protection for those stories and Conan Doyle estate has been claiming that any elements of the works that are in those stories are protected. Uh, there was a suit over the Enola Holmes movie, um, which is a Netflix movie uh, about Sherlock Holmes' sister. And in it, uh, the Holmes estate claimed that because Holmes was nice to women in that one, that that was an attribute that occurred in the later books and therefore was protected by copyright. I think that's a pretty weak argument. I don't I haven't seen a resolution of that case, but um, but certainly there are versions, for example, Batman, um, you know, he start, there's a classic Batman from the 40s, but then in the 80s, you had the Dark Knight Batman, which is a different iteration of Batman, and that would still be protected for the 95 years. Someone could do their own version of a, of a Dark Knight but it can't be the DC version. Larry, how do you think the courts might look at someone trying to use, uh, you know, DC characters, for example, like Batman or Superman uh, for their own use when they enter the public domain? I mean, you know, these are some of the most expensive, I should say lucrative and profit generating brands in the world. Um, the damages, of course, that DC would allege are in the billions conservatively. How do you think the courts might look at this, given, as you talked about earlier, it's a relatively unprecedented area of law? Well, the, the question is, do, how, is, how is the name protected? Because DC has trademarks to the word Superman and Batman in terms of the title of a comic book and the title of, uh, of books and movies. Um, so you, you couldn't call it that, or if you'd have to, you'd have to figure out some way to call it that, which doesn't violate the trademark rights. And that's really the issue that is more up in the air uh, over where, what you can do. But certainly, the, I mean, hopefully the courts will be more uh, reluctant to protect these legacy copyright holders from, uh, you know, holding on to these things after the, the period of time has, has ended. Um, I, you know, I think maybe you've seen there's going to be a Winnie the Pooh horror movie that's coming out. Uh, Winnie the Pooh went in the public domain last year, and someone jumped on it and said, well, I'll make a horror movie starring Winnie the Pooh. Uh, you know, so far, Disney hasn't done anything with the movie hasn't come out yet. But really, you know, and, and we've seen, like, Wizard of Oz has been in the public domain forever, you know, for a long, long time. And people have no problem understanding the difference between, you know, Wicked, which is an uh, original IP based on 
the, the you know a book which was based on the L. Frank Baum stories as opposed to the 1939 movie, which is one version of Wizard of Oz. By the way, I am all in on on Pooh, Blood and Honey. Uh, I never knew that uh, uh, Eeyore could be so terrifying. Yeah, although that trailer was uh, did not give me hope for a good movie. That was, it looked really looks bad. Like, looks like it was made for about seven dollars. It does. I mean, if you're going to take it, you, you know, but you know, do something good with it. Don't don't just slap something on there. That that. I mean, awesome. to your point, the, the director has actually done this in the past with some other IP. Yeah, so it should be interesting. So, speaking of horror movies, Larry, you've got some experience with horror movies. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Friday the Thirteenth? Uh, yeah, well, before I was a lawyer, I was an actor, and I was I played the role of Shelley in Friday the 13th Part 3. Shelley's the prankster character who brings the hockey mask to Camp Crystal Lake and gets killed for it, and, and the rest is uh, hockey mask history. So uh, that, that, that's my horror movie history. So without you, without Shelley, there would be, let's just say it out loud, because we're in the presence of horror royalty here, and as everyone knows, I'm a huge, huge, uh, passionate horror fan and, and more old school slasher horror. So none of this, you know, psychedelic uh, sci-fi stuff that, that's all the rage these days. But uh, without Shelley, without Larry, who's in front of us, there would be no mask wearing Jason. That's it. Flat out. Uh, OK. All right. Well, I don't know if that's the case, but I'll take it. <laughs> and I mean, we can't. You know, I got to I got to show you what I showed you earlier, our viewers yeah. and listeners. So. I uh, travel the uh, horror circuits, and uh, this is something I've been curating for years. This is a, of course, a Jason mask signed by about 10 of the actors who have played Jason. Uh, but I got to add our friend Shelly, Larry, onto the mask. Maybe in the back, because technically you're not, of course, Jason, but you wore the mask, right? You wore it first. I wore it first. It's technically Shelly's mask, not not Jason's mask, as the lawyer will tell you, that just killing someone and stealing it doesn't make it yours, right? So it's not actually Jason's mask, it's Shelly's mask, because it's his. Well, listen, uh, Larry knows, Tina, that uh, everyone at these t- at these conventions could, could make more money if you've got a cool title, a cool inscription, right? That we've got the first Jason, the last Jason. I think we need to, right now, trademark the name First Mask. Larry Zerner, a.k.a. Shelly, First mask, first Jason mask, something like that. I okay. want my piece. I'm just telling you, I want my piece. Team notes, let's work that out. You heard it here yeah, first. I agree. First mask. <laughs> We're working on it. We're working on it. And show Sounds us, you, you've got you got a much better piece of uh, memorabilia than I do. Maybe you don't oh. want to show it to the public for fear. I, I can't, although I, the camera makes it because uh, I'm using the screen. Yeah, screen. it's so, incredible. There it is. So there's my mask, and there's the, uh, there. Got lots of signatures in it. That's really got, cool. So you were in part three, 3D, of course. Yeah. Uh, you know, like what's one or two stories from the set, from that experience that our listeners would be uh, surprised by or, or shocked by? Is it, well, is, I, it, is it scary? Like, I, you know, I've been on film sets before, Tina has. Like, you know, you know, you're not scared in the moment, but did you know that this was like going to be a phenomenon? I mean, this is only part three. It wasn't the phenomenon it is now, you know, years and years later. Right. It was really part three that made it the phenomenon because yeah. one, it come out, you know, and the color is not Jason, it's Mrs. Voorhees. And then part two has Sackhead Jason, which did okay, but that wasn't a big thing. But the 3D movie was a huge hit. It was number one at the box office 
for a couple of weeks. Uh, it, 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 people went to see it again and again, and that really revitalized the brand. And then, you know, they went to, you know, four and five and kept making them. So, um, uh, it, it really was the, the, the one that, that kept it going. So did you tell all your friends and family that you were the star and then they all came and saw it and they were dismayed by the fact that Shelly, you know, gets killed midway through the film? Well, Shelly lasts pretty long and it's, it's a great part. I mean, I'm, they were they were very happy. Very, you know, that's what you do when you're in a horror movie. You die. That's, no, no. That's, that's, what you're, that's what you're supposed to do. That's the fun part. What's the, fun the craziest, part. what's the craziest request you've heard on the uh, convention circuit? Because, you know, people... People sign their names in all sorts of odd places and uh, places you probably can't, you know, share or show. Yeah, that, that, that's for the the Jasons get the, those requests. Shelley doesn't get that kind of work. No one's no one's on um, Jay Larry to, to sign some weird body part. That's that's not happening. Uh, that's not Shelley's thing. But uh, I did. The, the interesting story is that I got cast in the role because I was a standing. Uh, I was I was working. I had a job passing out movie passes in LA and I was standing on the corner in Westwood on a Saturday night handing out movie passes and I got spotted by the writers of the movie and they they said that's Shelly and and from that I got my audition and I got the role so that was that was pretty cool wow true Hollywood story yeah Larry thank you very much for the time and all the insight thanks thanks so much for having me Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Downey and Lenkoff a firm with offices in Illinois Indiana and Wisconsin Rich is consistently recognized by clients like McDonald's, Target, Macy's, Wendy's, and the Chicago Bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results. Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois super lawyer from 2015 to present and leading lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. Rich is also a producer with credits including 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon, Rock of Ages, and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. In addition to hosting WGN's Legal Faceoff since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Downey and & Lenkoff, please visit dl-firm.com. Let's move on to the Legal Grab Bag segment here at the Legal Face-Off podcast on WGN Radio. Our two fantastic guests with some podcast ties. We'll bring in Megan Henry, partner at Morgan & Aikens. And don't forget to follow, like, and subscribe to her podcast, The Defense Never Rests. Megan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Along with Matt Miller, part, partner at Kalbaugh Fund and Master Smith, the executive producer for the very aforementioned Sermapod. Matt, thanks so much for being here today as well. Thank you so much for having me. It's Matt Liller, not to be confused. It's a very horror-themed episode today, Joe. Not to be confused with the uh, scream actor, Matt Lillard. <laughs> Correct. And no ties to Damian Lillard either. Yeah. I, I'm sure you get confused all the time, Matt, for, for the scream actor. <laughs> Matthew Lillard is a staple. We talked earlier about the uh, horror movie convention circuit. I've, well, I'm going to show you in a second. Matt Lillard is a uh, staple on that circuit. 
Well, not quite a horror movie, but some horror that did happen on a movie set. Tina, let's begin with the continued investigation of the death on the movie set of Alec Baldwin's Rust, as one of the producers is denying liability. Yeah, Joe. So while the finger pointing unfortunately continues in the deadly shooting on the set of the movie Rust that had resulted in the death and injury of two crew members, this time it's the production company that says it's not responsible, but that there are certain crew members who are. So back in April, New Mexico Environment Department's Occupational Health and Safety Bureau had issued the highest level citation and maximum fine allowable by state law against the production company that's making the movie, Rust Movie Productions, finding that the production company demonstrated a plain indifference to the welfare of the cast and crew. They also found that the armorer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, was spread too thin because she had too many responsibilities, both as the armorer as well as the props assistant. So the Rust Movie Production Company appealed the decision, tried to settle the case, and that failed. And so they just filed an administrative complaint where they argued that they weren't an employer, that actually their responsibilities were just limited to financing and contracting with crew and talent to make the movie so that they can't have liability as an employer for the production. They also argued that the armorer's sole responsibility was to supervise gun safety and to make sure everything around gun safety and firearms and ammunition use complied with the law. Um, they also denied that they had instructed her to focus less on her armorer tasks, which is one of the allegations that has come up. Um, her attorney has said that she was clearly an employee and not an independent contractor. So she's refuting the production company's claims. Um, and she's also claiming that the production company didn't properly train the actors and that they were not given enough support to ensure that everybody was properly trained. She also claims that once she handed the gun over to the assistant director, um, you know, she was under the impression she'd be called back to do a safety check, which never happened. So all of this back and forth and finger pointing is against the backdrop of the Santa Fe County District Attorney's Office, considering whether uh, criminal charges are appropriate, which is going to be decided probably in October. So, Rich, we've covered this story a lot, and it's not surprising that a lot of people are pointing the finger at everybody else who's involved. And I think seeing what, what happens in October is going to be a pretty critical piece to this. Yeah, I mean, the criminal decision, which is taking forever, will be uh, relevant, but not, you know, of course, the standard by which you charge someone criminally and civilly are two entirely separate things. So it'll be, you know, noteworthy, but really won't be that impactful on whether there is any liability civilly for the various defendants that you mentioned. You know, I I know this area really well. I represent production companies for these kind of lawsuits and, you know, have a production company myself. And it's not surprising that, you know, they would be pointing the fingers at, I mean, I mean, obviously, they're trying to bring as many people uh, into liability as possible and, most importantly, uh, sue the parties that are most likely to be recoverable, right? The individual armorist, the individual, you know, um, uh, production manager might not have the resources, likely doesn't, to satisfy a wrongful death uh, verdict that the, uh, that the husband, the widower, and the son 
uh, have filed. But of course, the larger production companies have a lot more money, and therefore are uh, that's why these arguments are are brought forward. But you know, the argument that they weren't employees is actually not unexpected. I mean, most most people on the set are not employees of the production company of the of the studio. There are independent contractors. So I think there is some merit to the argument that they were acting not. Uh, you know, under the color of duty of the people sue, but actually individually. That doesn't mean that there isn't potential negligence and liability of the company just because they didn't employ these individuals. They also have the duty to enforce um, a safe workplace and, you know, train people properly. So there's all sorts of liability involved here. I'm not sure the employee argument is going to work. Um, but, but Megan, where, you know, where, where do you stand on some of these issues? Um, Alec Baldwin has come out and said, of course, that the real person who's responsible has yet to be heard from. And there is one individual, according to Alec Baldwin, that, you know, is sort of the smoking gun, not to use a bad, a bad pun. I mean, to me, I feel like when they're, they're they're trying to make the distinguishing factor between employee and independent contractor, and that's just kind of clouding the, all the, the the real issue at heart here. I mean, if you have a gun on set, you have to have high safety measures when, when you have something like like that around. And I feel, feel like they're trying to pass the buck on these little technicalities. That's how I feel. My, like my, my deep down gut kind of tells me you're just trying to circumvent liability. Yeah, I think it's a good point. I mean, Matt, do you think ultimately a jury is going to care you know, about all these legal arguments or are they going to say, listen, someone died? as a result of something that went wrong. That's something that went wrong is a live gun on a set. And while there might be some legal arguments, someone's responsible. So we're going to hit someone or, or more than one person with liability. I think that's a great point, Rich. And I think that's likely to happen. You know, we see that happen with juries all the time is, is you know, you've got an incident where somebody was killed uh, or, or hurt very seriously. And at the end of the day, a jury wants to find somebody that they can pin that on in some way for the, you know, the victim or the aggrieved person uh, to get redress from. And I think that's exactly what's going to happen here. Uh, Tina, let's move into our next story involving our familiar guest, Alan Dershowitz, and his involvement in a case that was just thrown out by a federal judge. Yeah, Joe. So last month, a federal judge in Connecticut dismissed a lawsuit that was filed by a volunteer professor at Yale School of Medicine who lost her job after suggesting publicly that both former President Trump as well as Alan Dershowitz may have shared psychiatric symptoms by contagion. So Bandy Lee is the name of the of the volunteer, and she was required to participate several hours a week in student teaching or supervisor activities. Um, the story began in 2020 when she said that Trump exhibited a pattern of delusions, was lacking rational decision making capacity and had definitive signs of severe pathology. And she took the position that she had a duty to warn the public that he was a threat to public safety. Interestingly, she then also brought Alan Dershowitz into the mix when she commented around the same time that he used the word perfect to describe his sex life with his wife after he was linked to Jeffrey Epstein. Um, and she also connected that use of the word perfect to Trump's use of the same word when he had called upon the Ukrainian president to investigate Joe Biden and his son. So apparently it was this common phraseology that was part of what instigated her to comment that both Trump and Dersh allegedly have a shared psychosis. She also wrote a book claiming that Trump's mental health was affecting the mental health of the U.S. population. 
So interestingly, uh, Yale Review Committee looked at all this and concluded that Lee actually was not making her statements as a lay person. She was actually acting in her professional capacity as a psychiatrist and that she didn't follow the proper protocols in making these statements, which include meeting the people that you're making the statements about and evaluating them. Um, as to the employment issue about whether or not there was an implied contract, because she was a volunteer, the committee said that there was no implied contract there. I mean, Rich, we've seen these types of cases before. I think ultimately Yale really just wanted to separate themselves from her and was looking for the opportunity to do so. And that's why they didn't renew her contract. You know, that's why people hate lawyers. Uh, <laughs> this, is, this is, I mean, a lot of a lot of nonsense, I think. I mean, it's also why, you know, uh, people feel that uh, universities and college campuses are like the center of woke culture. Um, yeah, maybe she didn't fall. I mean, there's a couple of takes on it. You know, do we really think that this professor was doing all this because she was really concerned? She really wanted to protect the public from, you know, these psychoses of these two individuals. Number one. Number two, um, who cares, really? I mean, you know, let Dershowitz call his marriage perfect and let her call him out on that if that's what, you know, she wants to do. It's ironic. Our friend, the eminent professor, Alan Dershowitz, who's been on many times and we really enjoy having on. It's ironic that he is complaining about someone else availing themselves of the First Amendment, right? He was just on our show a couple of weeks ago saying how, you know, he was canceled and cancel culture and the death of free speech. Yet he is now saying that this woman who called him, who said he has some psychosis should be silenced. So I don't think that's entirely consistent. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't feel uh, that this is a valid use of the legal system. Not that they're, uh, and you know, Yale should probably just move on. But uh, Megan, what's your thoughts on this one? Well, you know, I kind of agree with you on that. I think it's, you know, it, it's dragging out a little bit, and you know, it, time could probably be time and money could be spent in other areas than here. Yeah, uh, Matt, this is a uh, Yale. So, yeah, so worried about some other stuff, maybe? Yeah, I think they've got other things to worry about. I think one, an interest, two little interesting wrinkles on this one. One, I think, I think the issue was her contract was not renewed, rather than she was actually dismissed, uh, which is probably a little bit different. Uh, and, and the other thing is, since this was um, Connecticut, I think. This Connecticut has the only law, as far as I know, in the country uh, about, you know, protecting uh, it, their employee speech when it doesn't go to uh, affect the nature of their work. Uh, but and I think those two, you know, are, are interesting, interesting little wrinkles. But I think the, the bigger one in this one was her contract wasn't renewed. She wasn't even terminated for uh, for the speech. As Rich mentioned earlier, Legal Faceoff podcast has been around for eight years, which means that this is the first one we record without the Queen of England being on this earth. So what do we do in her honor, Rich? We talk about a legal matter regarding her death <laughs> and where her assets will end, end up. You know, thankfully, uh, you know, God rest the Queen's soul. The, the Queen is my, as a Canadian, she's actually my head of state. So I'm in uh, bereavement right now, Joe. But um yeah, the question legally, and perhaps we'll have an expert on this uh, for the next time, is what happens to the queen's assets, Tina? Uh, the queen obviously is one of the wealthier people uh, on, on earth. She was, and uh, some say that her fortune was upwards of $500 million 
pounds. Is that what I read? So the question is because you know who gets her assets uh, legally now, and I think the answer is that uh, it's bequeathed to the new king of England, right? But um, one question legally is: uh, Was there a will? I'm not sure if there was an actual will or whether that's just by you know royal law, for lack of a better term. And we know also, Tina, that there's some discord in the royal family. You know, even though we saw Meghan and Harry uh, come back and walked with uh, Prince William, or now the, uh, what's his new title? He's now the Prince of Wales. Uh, and they seem to be getting along. Who knows if Meghan and Harry will lay some claim to the crown jewels and the Tower of London, Tina, whatever else is in the uh, royal estate. Well, I have to believe that if a will is recognized under the local law that she would have had a will. I mean, especially with all the strife and discord in that family. Um, I just am fascinated by the whole notion of, you know, when she passed away, which was very sad. It was the end of an era. There are some who really don't like her, don't like that whole, um, you know, monarchy for lack of a better way of putting it. But um, it was just very interesting sort of want, watching the pomp and circumstance around Charles becoming the king. You don't really see that all that often, especially given that she was she was queen for seven decades. So um, it'll be interesting to see what happens with the 500 million. My guess is that everybody is pretty well off without that 500 million. So. Yeah, Matt, inevitably on this show, we have covered uh, many stories when famous celebrities die and inevitably their families get into a fight over what's left, be it intellectual property in the form of like Prince's songs, for example, or, you know, actual, um, you know, sometimes it's an actual body, like in the Casey Kasem situation where they were fighting about his body for years. Other times it's actual property. It would seem unseemly for the royal family to be fighting over this and they probably won't, but you never know. You can never underestimate people when uh, when big money's involved. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so I, you know, and I think the Queen's estate is kind of divided. You know, that we've got the personal estate and the Crown estate, and the Crown estate, you know, goes goes through certain channels, and 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 you know, so it's what happens to the personal estate. You know, I think there was some. You know, I'm certainly not an expert on uh, uh, wealth transfer of the United Kingdom, but I think there are some types of privacy laws. Uh, I well, believe. We booked, well, by the way, we booked you because we thought you were. So <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I, I I really need to update my bio. I, it was when I was trying to get a job, and and maybe claims were made. Uh, but, but I think there are some 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 uh, monarchy privacy laws as far as wills kind of being sealed for you know a hundred years or something like that. And so, you know, it's not a real public, uh, you know, the will is not a real public thing. If it does exist, presumably exists, but, uh, you know, the public's not going to know about it for a hundred years or, or something to that effect, even if it does. Megan, let's face it. If anyone's fighting this, it's your namesake. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's what I was going to say. And you know what, after, uh, everything that's happened in the last year and the, that, the famous Oprah interview, I would not be surprised that, some people may have been um, extremely either cut out or cut down out of her will. I think, you know, Harry and Meghan's antics, whether anyone agrees with them or not, I think it probably really ruffled some royal feathers. Um, so I would not be surprised if there was changes made. If there is a will, there was changes made. And I also wouldn't be surprised if we do hear about it. If, if there was any 
I feel like if they were cut out in any sort of way, it's going to, it's going to surface. Well, for the sake of the show, Joe, we're hoping that this is not the end of the story. <laughs> of course, yes, we're, we're keeping our priorities in order. Also, uh, Royal Feathers sounds like a great band name. So. <laughs> uh, Rich, a story we've covered recently involving Quentin Tarantino and his NFTs and apparently already been settled. Yeah, we covered this with... Uh, an expert in NFTs last episode, I believe. And uh, as a reminder, there was a lawsuit between Tarantino, Quentin Tarantino, the legendary director of, uh, of many films like Inglorious Bastards and Kill Bill, both volumes and Reservoir Dogs. And uh, he sold one page or a couple of pages from his uh, original script for Pulp Fiction, uh, his second film, and he sold that as an NFT. Uh, the problem was Mirabax claimed that he did not have the right, according to the contract that they uh, agreed to back in the early 90s, to sell off that script, which contained some handwritten notes of his uh, as an NFT. And Mirabax sued him to prevent him from doing that. Well, he, he actually sold one of the pages. Uh, I believe the pages involving the infamous uh, Roy, uh, Royale with Cheese uh, discussion. And he sold that for a little over a million. And then suddenly they settled the lawsuit last week. Now, many speculate. And in the release, he said something about the, um, you know, the, uh, you know, intangible NFT market or the volatile T uh, NFT market. Many point to that as saying, uh, as another word for saying that this was useless chunk that really no one wanted. Um, you know, had it been of value and had there been a market for the other pages, then he wouldn't have settled. We don't know the terms of the settlement, but I think it points to the volatility still of this emerging marketplace of NFTs and, you know, the questionable nature of the value of it. And to our experts point last time, what you really possess, right? Are you buying into a liability? If you buy this NFT, are you buying into a potential lawsuit? I think that can't be uh, over overshadowed when discussing why this case settled. On the other hand, again, I'm a huge Tarantino fan, love Pulp Fiction. I would have paid probably not over a million for those pages, but I thought they were a, a, an invaluable piece of art. But Tina, what's your take as a IP attorney on this issue? So I think that there are a lot of really interesting issues here, Rich. And I agree with you that, you know, I think a lot of folks, especially with the economy being in a questionable state as we're getting ready to close out 2022, I think there is a question as to the longevity of NFTs, especially when they are so rife with potential legal issues. So I do think that there's an element of that. I also think that the parties that settled probably realized that there's a lot of synergy in working together, um, economic benefit and otherwise. And so they can probably do a heck of a lot more together than they could independently. And so instead of spending the money duking it out in court on attorney's fees, they'd rather collaborate and try to, to the extent that NFTs continue to be in demand and lucrative, Doing it together is better than doing it independently of each other. Megan, what are your thoughts? You know, the one thing that comes to mind here too is the the newness of NFTs and there not being many legal parameters out there. I feel like part of this decision on the on the party's parts was made the way like we don't have any real guiding light onto this. So if we keep pushing this forward, some of one of us might be extremely upset. But there's not going to be a like real black letter law to follow here. So I think they were trying to pull themselves out of the mix and to kind of pad their losses so they're not faced with some giant, giant loss or giant verdict or whatever it may be with no real 
you know, solid legal recourse to follow because it's just a very new area. I kind of see it as like, you know, when when drones first came out and, you know, no one understood how to regulate drones. Is it an airplane? What is it? Like, how how do we enforce it and regulate it? I feel like it's kind of a similar market. It's all Y2K, Joe. It all ultimately (laughs) comes down to Y2K. (laughs) When all our computers were going to explode on on midnight. (laughs) Right. Uh, Let's get to more horror movie talk. And the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Tina, was a very scary movie. How can we make it even more frightening? Let's bring up copyright infringement. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. So um, in continuing with the fine tradition of this episode and talking about horror movies and IP, um, Vortex Inc., which is the company that manages the rights in the 1974 horror film Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Uh, sued the owners of a Texas gas station that actually appeared in the movie, accusing them of copyright infringement through their sale of dozens of unauthorized memorabilia items from the movie. So Roy and Lisa Rose are the ones who run the gas station off State Highway 304 um, that sells barbecue and horror memorabilia and hosts uh, events with the movie as their theme. Vortex, as the holder of the copyright, licenses various rights to various companies and people um, to enable them to create clothing and other novelties. They had originally contacted the Roses back about six years ago to try to get a licensing agreement in place. The Roses said that they would only do a deal if they could get the writers of the film to sign autographs at the gas station on an annual basis and if they could recoup their costs first before paying royalties. After a meeting between the parties fell through, um, when the Roses didn't provide their business plan to Vortex, um, the Roses continued to do what they were doing, including having a cult classic convention where they would gather enthusiasts for horror films. I'm not sure, Rich, if you were one of them, um, and sold these infringing goods. So it's interesting. I mean, you know, this is the way that these lawsuits typically go. They're asking for actual damages or statutory damages and claiming millions of dollars as well as destruction of the items. My guess is that this one's going to settle pretty quickly because I don't think that the defendants really have much of a uh, of a case here. But uh, I turn it over to Rich, Mr. Uh, Horror Film Extraordinaire here. <laughs> Are you in there, Rich? <laughs> Is he not allowed to talk because he's wearing the mask? Uh-huh. Boy. So, Matt, let's well, turn over to you. What do you think of this case? <laughs> well, you know, listen, just as luck would have, I have to have my leather face signed mask from <laughs> nice. who starred in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, just happy to have it at the ready. Yeah, you know, I mean. You always, you know, as an intellectual property team, you always basically tell us that a lot of this stuff is simple. Get permission, right? I mean, yes, complicated. Uh, you are begging for a lot. It's not like I mean, a lot of these cases we see where they're using like a line, a mark, a small piece of memorabilia. This store is begging for a lawsuit. I mean, <laughs> it has like hundreds and hundreds. I looked at the video. It's got hundreds of pieces. Uh, that are either inspired by or from the movie. And I can't believe it's taken this long. Texas Chasing a Massacre came out in like 1978. Um, it was actually 74. So, it's almost 50 years old, Rich. Yeah, so I mean, you know, uh, I I would love to visit this place. Looks like it's got great stuff, but 
my God, of course they're going to get sued. And of course, it's you know, it's a, it seems like a pretty open and shut case. Megan. Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna continue. With, this is a <laughs> Megan. What are your thoughts on this one? I mean, I would ag- agree that there there's a very strong case against them, but on the flip side, you know, like these people have been making money off this store for years and no one ever like, and now it comes up. They're probably like, well, what the heck are we, is where we grandfather into this? And I don't know the law on that, but I could see the surprise or, you know, this is now their livelihood and they probably, how long they had this store and now it like, it's being, you know, clamped down. So, well, Tina, what about that? Can you argue that because you failed to protect your IP for years, then you waive the right to do so? Well, it depends on when these guys, meaning Vortex, became aware of the infringing activity. So, um, you know, that really, I mean, it's a latches issue. So did, did they, did the plaintiff really sit on their rights or did they only relatively recently become aware, like back in 2016, for example, and then begin to try to work a licensing deal out? I mean, that's an important thing to think about. Matt. Uh yeah, so it would be interesting to know when, when you know, when uh, the company knew that the, the infringing marks were being used, uh, you know, and there's a, there, there, I imagine it wouldn't be difficult to see a progressing line of, you know, going from, hey, the gas station from where the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was filmed to now putting the Texas Chainsaw Massacre on the t-shirt in the gas station. Um, and so, you know, there certainly is a distinction there of just saying, hey, this is a historical lo- historical location or, or fan favorite location where you can see where the film was made. Um, but, you know, to then using the infringing mark and, and you know, as a defense attorney, it seems like a fairly open and shut case uh, on this one for me as well. So I was uh, a young, a young, very young uh, person when this movie came out and my, my brother showed it to me at a very young age um, and uh, sparked my lifelong love of horror movies. It's one of my top five. It's on the Mount Rushmore for me, Texas Chainsaw original. Uh, let's go around the horror really quickly and everyone tell us your favorite horror movie of all time. And there's no, there's no repeats. You can't say something that someone else said. So uh, it might take a little while for Joe typically because, <laughs> only because, only because you know, he's a younger man. So, Megan, what's your favorite horror movie of all time? Well, I I will say the horror movie I watched all the time when I was a kid was this really bad movie called, I think, The Stepfather. But I would oh not God, say that's not my God. favorite one. But out of just... Terry O'Quinn, amazing. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. But in college, the house that I lived in, my last two years of college, was in the last scene of The Exorcist. So I would have what? to say... Yeah. Oh, my God. So I have to go. Where was that? In Georgetown. Like I lived at the top of the exorcist steps and my house was in the last scene. That's incredible. So I have to go with that one, even though I watched the the stepfather a lot. (laughs) Uh, I was, I'll say silence of the lambs uh, to the extent that's a horror film, or I have been known to uh, just kind of sit down and binge watch a lot of the Saul movies. uh, Whenever, whenever the mood might so strike. A good call. Saul is amazing. Um, Tina. So I am a huge fan of the original Halloween. Love it. Also saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre like you did at a very young age. You and I both love horror movies, Rich. But I think in terms of a more modern sort of horror, I would say I found the ring really, really scary. So in a, a different sort of horror, um, but very scary. Joe, favorite <laughs> horror movie. <laughs> 
I had a feeling we were going to have a wardrobe change once the <laughs> green went black once again. Uh, I am a big fan of the saws as well, but of course, uh, no repeats, Joe. No repeats here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, strangers, the strangers, maybe uh, one of the most scariest movies I've seen in theaters. Wasn't paranormal? Uh, paranorma, whatever the word is. Um, paranormal. Paranormal. <laughs> thank you, thank you. A normal person should be able to say that. Um, just it, it was just very real, you know. Staying at some. Uh, some cabin in the woods and then just random people coming up to kill you. You know, that, that, that that's what actually frightens me rather than some of the sci-fi stuff that you were saying earlier, Rich. And what you're doing right now is very frightening as well. <laughs> um, so why don't we move on to some other scarier topics? Like, uh, is this the final time we're going to be talking about that little naked kid from the Nirvana album? <laughs> okay. I don't know. I've really enjoyed discussing this, and I'm really kind of sad that this may yeah, be. Yeah, I got to find my Kurt Cobain prop. One second. Um, I don't know, Joe. This may be the last time, but as I'm going to mention in a second, there's an appeal involved. So. As Joe mentioned, we previously covered here on Legal Faceoff the case of Spencer Eldon, who is the naked baby on Nirvana's Nevermind album from the early 90s. Unfortunately for him, a federal judge has once again dismissed his lawsuit and he is now appealing. So the story began and we started covering this last summer when Eldon sued Kurt Cobain's estate and his former bandmates, as well as the photographer and the record company, seeking at least $150,000 in damages from each defendant plus legal fees. In January, his lawsuit was dismissed, and we covered that on Legal Faceoff after his lawyers missed a deadline for responding to a defense motion. The judge allowed Eldon to amend his complaint, and then the case moved forward. In dismissing the lawsuit this time, the judge found that Eldon blew the statute of limitations, which requires a child pornography victim to bring a claim either 10 years after the violation is discovered or injury against them is discovered or 10 years after they turn 18, which is 28 years old. So Eldon's attorneys, when discussing why they are appealing, said that in their mind, the judge has misinterpreted the federal child sexual exploitation law, which is known as MASH's law and claims that Nirvana and the record label profited from the picture and that the picture constitutes child pornography and that the law permits victims to sue for each violation of their privacy when their childhood images remain in circulation. And given that the 30th anniversary re-release of Nevermind came out last year with the same cover as the original release, um, that, you know, that the claim remains ripe and that the intent of the law was not for claims like this to vaporize once a victim turns 28. And the defendants argue that what Eldon's trying to do is suspend the statute of limitations indefinitely. And given the fact, and we covered this also previously, that Eldon plays up his Nirvana baby status. He reenacts the photo, he autographs copies of the album and creates economic opportunities for himself. So he can't really have it both ways, Rich. Yeah. I mean, again, to me, sometimes common sense, thankfully, rolls out in these lawsuits and the courts see it for what it was, which was a money grab, right? I mean, this kid has been milking this, this story of this lawsuit for years and years. Uh, his parents consented to put, he, put him on the album. 
He's gained great notoriety and fame and money as a result of it. He put himself out there using this image on more than one occasion. And then he turns around once that all runs dry and he's squeezed every ounce of money and notoriety he can out of this, you know, picture. Uh, he turns around and, and sues. So I'm glad it's done. Uh, hopefully we won't be covering it anymore and we can move on to, you know, other albums featuring naked youngsters. On, um, <laughs> Matt, are you a, are you a, are you are you a Nirvana fan? Not the biggest Nirvana fan uh, of all time. Um, I, I do want to touch on that statute of limitations issue real quick because it's that that's an interesting point of you know it, each time the album is re released is that a new uh, point in time where you're putting it out to the public whereas you, you're triggering the statute of limitations all over again and I think you know there there are some issues like that you know kind of public policy issues but I think a you know a defendant has a you know, kind of a right to know, you know, when the statute of limitations is, is, is over. And so kind of knowing that, you know, the, the 28 year old, uh, you know, demarcation before, um, I think is very helpful. And, and, you know, Rich, back to your point, this was obviously a money grab and, and obviously the well's dry. And I think the gentleman also has a tattoo of, of something about that on his, on his chest. I think if, if it says never mind, or he has some sort of tattoo, uh, commemorating the album as well. Yeah, except instead of grabbing for a dollar like on the album, he's grabbing for a billion dollars on the, <laughs> on the tattoo. Megan, um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, defend. This, how about defending the kid? Take take the opposite approach. This is called uh, legal face off. Come on. <laughs> but I don't want to defend him. Um, you know, I, I think a defense. He could say, "Oh, well, I was just, uh, you know." I didn't have a say in this. Uh, the decision was made made for me. You know, my my like and my body was put out there, and you know, and I've been educated on this in the last few years, and I realize how much of an invasion of my privacy that that is. Um, I mean, I think that's the argument they have to make. Um, but I, I call bullshit all over this. Yeah. So. You can't you can't really make it with a straight face. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's what I, when I first saw this, I was like, for real? Like, I gotta... <laughs> go away, naked baby. We have, uh, we've seen mama drama in the NBA before, but never to this extent. Uh, mother's mother knows best, Rich. Does that include trademarking your name when you're an NBA star? I guess that's what we got to ask Luka Doncic. Luka versus his mom ends the, uh, the run here this morning. Uh, his mom, owns the trademark uh which is uh uh his number and his name he gave it to her right so luca of course is one of the greatest you know players currently playing in the nba uh just got off uh what playing the in italy maybe um and uh you know one of the well the most well-known players and whose brand tina is is very valuable of course and uh more than ever especially in the nba we see players you know, expanding their empires from just playing to all sorts of other business ventures. And of course, your brand, your number, your name, your likeness, that's all very lucrative. That's all worth something. Well, uh, when he was coming into the league early on in his career, uh, Luca gave that trademark to his mom, who, you know, now has it. Well, Luca is now suing his mother to recover that trademark and, of course, uh, you know, make it his own and exploit it uh, for himself. Um, so interesting, you know, uh, many of us would like to maybe 
sue our mothers for various things. But <laughs> Luke is actually doing it, but, but technically he's filing an appeal to cancel the trademark, right, Tina? Yes, he's filing a petition to cancel the registration. Um, you know, for trademark nerds like me, there's, you know, the types of theories that you would expect. So, I mean, I think that, you know, the whole premise of this is that he was young. He wasn't really very knowledgeable in the management of his own affairs. She was helping him. And so he technically had. I wonder if he's consulting with the Nirvana baby on that legal argument. Yeah. <laughs> It sounds shockingly similar. Well, I actually would take his case over. I take Luca's case before I take the Nirvana baby's case. But I mean, he he's technically withdrawn his consent, which is not a good thing from the trademark office perspective. Because when a trademark identifies a living individual, you need to have their written consent in order to get their 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 name registered or to be part of a trademark. And so he's technically withdrawn his consent. He's making some other theory. You know, he's arguing that there's a dilution or tarnishment of the brand. He's also arguing that his mother will never be able to establish use or continue use of the trademark without his consent. So he's got an abandonment theory in there as well. So, you know, I just wish that people could get along because it would really be a lot easier if he and his mom could just figure this out without him having to petition to cancel the registration. I mean, it's very telling. Yeah, Tina, thanks for that great explanation. But what's very telling, Megan, is that he is suing her company. Let me ask you this question, maybe somewhat um, um, pessimistically. Would his mother, would Luca Doncic's mother have a company? If it wasn't for Luca Dodge, I mean, <laughs> you know, come on, please. What are we talking about here? Right. I mean, I, 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 but on the flip side, um, you know, you could say that she probably sacrificed a lot to get help get her son where, where he is. And she probably did help him with his branding and the initial stages of when he was first starting out and had all, you know, getting money and making a name for himself. So, I mean, I'm sure she could say, like, look, I helped, I built this up for him. There, there wouldn't be, you know, Luca without me. Um, and maybe she can point to everything that she's done to help grow his brand. Thank God for it. I mean, you know, we didn't have, we don't have a, a, a fight yet, Matt, in the royal family, but we've got a fight in the first family of international basketball. <laughs> Thank God for legal place up. Yeah, and, and I think some of the dilution argument is, so I actually looked at that trademark a little bit, and, and in addition to some clothing and some some digital video game likeness, it's also in the realm of uh, cosmetics, fragrances, perfumes, uh, hair conditioners, essential oils, you know, and as Luca is, a, you know, arguably a top 10, and, and some would argue even a top five, you know, basketball player on planet Earth, you know, now he's with the Jordan brand, which brings an even more, you know, a higher level of, of fame and notoriety. And as his con career continues to blossom, it's probably going to be a many, many time perennial all-star, you know, uh, is that going to cause him harm or may cause him harm or dilute his brand uh, that he's associated with, you know, essential oils and perfume and hair conditioner? Uh, and so, you know, when you kind of say it, you're like, well, yeah, I guess I could see a, a bit of dilution of the brand there. You know, that's a really good point because we don't know the terms of his endorsement deal, but he may have had no choice but to petition to cancel so that he could get control over the brand. Agree. That's a great point. I, th I thought we were going to see Rich appear back in a Luka Doncic. <laughs> that's what I was banking on as well. 
<laughs> no, this is relevant as we say goodbye to Matt Lillard, not Matt Lillard from Screen Pen. By the way, Matt Lillard is right up there. There you go. By the way, people, if I if I just introduce myself and say my name, people spell it the same way of, of Matthew Lillard all, all the time. All right. Well, we're here to say it's Liller, L-I-L-L-E-R. I'm sure now you will never have that problem moving forward. Hopefully. Appearance here, Matt. Uh, big thanks to our legal grab bag guests of Megan and Matt. Again, make sure to check out their podcast as well of The Defense Never Rests and The Surma Pod. Another big thanks to our earlier guest, Larry Zerner, attorney Bill Nissen, and law professor Brian Leiter, along with our- Do you realize, do you realize Joe, that uh, one of our guests today went to uh, Harvard twice. We also had a professor from University of Chicago. When they see how this show has gone off the rails, <laughs> they're never coming on again. You can be assured of that. I thought you were going to finish off legal grab bag asking us to go around the horn and say our favorite mother's son law dispute. <laughs> <laughs> that would have stumped Joe. Joe, let's give it up for Victory Monday for the Bears. Let's see what you about got. It. How about it? How about it? Quite the uh, here we come. overperformance in week one. We'll see what happens week two. Uh, again, keep an eye out for 20 Mike Ditkas at uh, Sunday Night Football next week. Uh, also, don't forget to like, subscribe, and share the Legal Faceoff podcast. Please, please give us five stars. I'm Joe Brand for Tina Martini and Rich Lankoff. We will talk to you in a couple weeks on the Legal Faceoff podcast. It's Christina Martini and Rich Lankoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Faceoff. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget the.